This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have Danelle. Danelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you give us a little background of where you grew up? Well, I grew up here in the Columbus, Ohio area um, all of my life. I grew up on the north side in a affluent suburb. And then in high school, we moved to the east side to a different um, affluent um, suburb, which is where I grew up and uh, went to a small private Christian college in northeastern Ohio. Um, had a bachelor's in social work did that for a number of years. Um, and then I moved to Louisiana to the Shreveport area for a little over a year and a half. Um, lived with my dad down there. My parents had divorced while I was in high school. Um, and he worked with General Motors and transferred down there to their plant. And then I lived, uh, my um, grandmother ended up with uh, brain cancer and um, well, lung cancer and metastases of the brain. And so I moved down there to just spend some time with her and spend time with my dad after she passed away. And um, then I moved back to Ohio and uh, lived out in Pickerington with my mom for a number of years. And then she had a brain aneurysm bleed um, and uh, a blood clot stroke. And so um, just to kind of help maintain my sanity, I started seeing some, a counselor, um, a Christian counselor, um, who kind of just helped me journey with my mom. Um, she managed to survive the brain aneurysm, but um, was dependent on others for care. And so I brought her home when I was able to, to care for her at home until um, she developed some medical issues that were just beyond what I could do at home. And so um, God bless my counselor. She really helped me maintain <laughs> myself during a very stressful time. And mm-hmm. um about six months before my mom passed away, um, she was living in a nursing home. that's actually not too far from where I live now. And um, my counselor's like, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I don't know. She's like, because, you know, your mom's not going to live for forever. And I was like, I know this. So she encouraged me to pray about it. And uh, so within one week time, and it was the following week that she mentioned this, but within one week time, I had five different people that knew me but none of them were related at all. Like one was my family doctor. One was her, my counselor. Um, one from one person, one person from a church that I was going to, one from a messianic synagogue I was going to, and somebody else all said, have you thought about becoming a chaplain? I was blown away. I was like, okay, God, now you've got my attention. Um, and so I ended up talking with a friend who was a casual chaplain at one of our local hospitals. and. Um, he gave me the name and number of his um, director. I talked to her and she was like, sure, you can shadow a chaplain for a day. So I went in and shadowed this chaplain and um, just felt like God dropped it in my spirit that this is what I'm supposed to do. And so 
started looking into what I needed to do. And thankfully, I had already had my bachelor's degree. So started looking at seminaries and ended up going to seminary, got my MDiv while I was at seminary. My mom passed away um, a week before seminary started. So I went part time that first year just because of grief and all of that. But um, ended up getting my MDiv with a concentration in pastoral counseling and care. Um, and during, while I was in seminary, um, an opportunity came up for me to be a chaplain intern at a local hospital in that area. And so I did that for two years and then volunteered for a year. Um, and then I graduated and moved back to Columbus where I completed my residency in CPE and then, um, ended up at a hospital, staying at that same hospital, um, and did some, uh, work as an interim women's health chaplain and then got sent to hospice and then ended up at the hospice that I'm at now. Uh, I was wondering, yeah, when you were started talking about your mom's illnesses that, uh, if you were still doing your chap, I mean, your, excuse me, your social work. Actually, I was unemployed for just a little bit and I took advantage of that time and got my mom's house ready to sell because I knew we were going to have to sell it to get her on Medicaid. Um, and so I, I learned how to do a lot of things around the house. Um, but then I ended up working kind of in social work. Um, I was working at a group home with um, the um, intellectually disabled and some behavioral health. That really helped me because actually during my mom's illness and me being unemployed, I actually became very agoraphobic. And so getting a job where I had to drive people around to appointments and grocery stores and everything else really God stretched me and healed me of that agoraphobia. Cause <laughs> if, I mean, I was taking care of my mom at the time at home. And so, um, cause I had lost my job because of caring for my mom, um, ran out of FMLA, had to quit my job. My mom came first. And so, um, yeah, I would only go to the toilet paper if I was out of necessities because I was not leaving my mom. So Mm. Um, yeah, that job really stretched me into, uh, being able to travel again and leave my house. Danielle, it, it looks like you've been uh, a caregiver almost from a young age. Earth. Yeah, since my brother was born, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you always found balance? Um, I mean, when I was younger, I played sports and was very active, um, as an adult, um, I'm trying to get back into working out. I was really good at it a while ago and I would still really like to do a triathlon next year when everything's not canceled. Um, so I'm trying to get back into working out because that was a goal for this year and lost some of that motivation with everything being canceled. But, um, I like to spend time with my family, my nieces and nephews, and then some of my little pseudo grandbabies, um, that some of my family's gracious to share with me. Um, and just hanging out with some friends, um, but I'm an introvert, so I stay home a lot and just, I don't know, work around my house gardening. I've added a bunch of flower beds to my house that I bought four years ago. So I've been getting into gardening and all of that. So, and I'm spending time with God. Mm. So we normally like to ask our, our guests, whether they're chaplains or not, their spiritual history. Uh, Mm-hmm. What, what What is your faith tradition from childhood? Well, as a child, okay, so my parents had four children. Um, I'm the oldest and the only girl. 
And when my twin brothers were born, they're three years and a day younger than me. We stopped going to the United Methodist Church, but we maintained membership there. But we didn't really go. And um, so, I don't know, I didn't really know about God when I was little, um, except for my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Um, She was who I credit my faith with. I, she was very special to me. She was a safe place in the midst of a lot of chaos in my childhood home. And um, I can hear her still to this day singing hymns in my head or humming them. And um, <laughs> she was just the person that introduced me to God. And every time I would stay with her, uh, we always, I don't know, said the scary childhood prayer of now I lay me down to sleep. Um, <laughs> and she would just always pray with me. And so, um, you know, that, stayed at her house, but then when she got older and she was getting um, Alzheimer's dementia, but back in the mid-80s, that was just being researched and diagnosed. And so um, her forgetfulness, she ended up staying with an aunt and uncle that lived nearby. So I would adult sit my grandmother Uh and, um, and then she ended up in a nursing home and I was the only person she was able to recognize at the end. And so, um, when she died, I actually went outside of our house and raised my fist up to God and was like, I'm so angry with you for taking my grandmother. And, um, and so after that, like, I don't know, I just felt like in that moment, it was like, well, then look for me. And so I started going to church all by myself. I told my parents, like, I want to go to youth group. I want to do these things. And so I started going to the United Methodist Church um, youth group that um, we were members at. And became part of the bell choir for a year, um, did all of those things, um, and really just searched for God for myself. And then eventually the family kind of followed for a little bit when we moved from one suburb to another. Um, when we got to the other suburb, the whole family started going to church. So, um, and then maintained there through college. Then after college, I had my little rebellion and didn't really want God's accountability for my life. So I spent a number of years on my own. I mean, God was there, but, you know, and then um, came to the end of myself, as I like to say, and ended up uh, meeting God again and crying out to him and and inviting him to be a part of my life again. And so um, from there, I went back to the same United Methodist Church, but then got introduced to a Messianic Jewish synagogue here in Columbus and went there for a number of years. Um, and they're very community-minded. I'm still in contact with many people from there. Um, they're still family to me. So um, went there for a while, and that, I was actually going there when I entered seminary and um, knew that I was not going to get ordained through them or anything like that because I'm not Jewish and I don't have a Jewish heritage. So went back and talked to my United Methodist pastor who fully supported me in going into ministry. And so I went down that path for a little bit for ordination. Um, turned out it wasn't a good fit. And so I ended up, um, I'm now with a non-denominational church. So I'm ordained through them. What a nice history. I mean, it gives you a lot of experience to be able to share with others uh, stories, uh, understandings of, yeah. and I mean, especially when you're talking about in your chaplaincy, when you start talking to folks about end of life, uh, mm-hmm. your grandmother's, your mother's death, your grandmother's death, uh, significant a- episodes in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. How do they, uh, 
how do you relate to others when you have this history? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think part of that is my job history. One, um, I've done, my mom used to call me a a jack of all trades and master of none. Um, I've worked at the post office. I've been a social worker. I'm a chaplain. I've worked at General Motors on the assembly line building S10s. Um, I have just had this amazing array of jobs. And so I think for me, that has helped me, number one, to just get know, get to know people individually from such a wide variety of demographic information, from rich to poor, from all different nationalities to anything. Like, I love learning about people. Um, but I think as a hospice chaplain, for me, where I'm able to come into anybody's home because I love all people and I've had so many different experiences with so many different people. Um, that when it comes to hospice, when my mom was sick after she had aneurysm bleed, I kept getting approached about hospice and palliative care. And I'm 29, 30 years old. I'm not ready for my mom to die. And I absolutely was like kicking that like even referral. Mm-hmm. But then um, when my dad got sick with cancer about five years ago, um, I was like, dad, go on hospice. Like, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> so um, I'm like, you will have home health aides help come out to help you. I, you have a nurse, you have a social worker. Like, you don't really have to leave the house if you don't want to. And so, like, I really advocated for hospice at that point. So quite a change. But I always tell, like, I feel for the caregivers. I mean, I love my patients, but I also, part of our job as chaplains is to provide support to our families also. And so when I encounter a caregiver that is just exhausted, I'm like, I've been where you're at. It's the hardest job ever because it's pulling from you holistically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, everything. It pulls from you and you don't get a break. A lot of times our caregivers just don't get breaks. And I understand Mm. that. And so um, I think it just helps me to be able to empathize with them a little bit in a way that not everyone gets to. And so um, sometimes I don't disclose a lot all the time to every patient, but when I feel like it's appropriate, I do. And for somebody that's like a hard caregiver and I start to open up and say, you know, I've been a caregiver for a parent that was, you know, at end of life. And um, I just, I know how hard it is. It's the hardest job ever. And it's almost like it just blossoms into this beautiful relationship that I can have with people where they're like, oh, you get it. Okay. So, and then they'll talk to me. And so I try to use my experiences to just help in that way. You have such passion and it's obvious. How is this, how's this COVID challenging you during uh, this, this time with, with this passion? Oh, I'm not going to lie. There's days where I am super frustrated and I just, I cry because I can't get in to see my ECF patients, my nursing home patients. And assisted living patients, unless they're at end of life. Um, so it's really, I don't know, it's been frustrating, but um, once or twice, and I need to do this more often, I think, like I bought some like just blank note cards that are card stock with matching envelopes and stickers. And I just write them a little note, you know, even if they're Alzheimer's dementia patients and they would have no idea who mm-hmm. I am, they're at least getting a piece of mail with bright colors um, and mailing things to them. Um I have some nursing home patients that over the course of the last many months, I've been able to do window visits. Um, 
And, and so that's been nice to at least be able to see a couple of patients. I've had one that's consistently been um, alert and oriented and a couple of them have passed away, but being able to do window visits um, with some of them. And then um, God bless the home patients that, and yeah. families yeah. that allow us to come in their home because, mm-hmm. you know, as careful as we are, you know, they're still allowing a risk for us coming in. But um, we do a lot of telephone visits a lot of telephone visits with families too. Mm. You know, so it's thinking outside of the box. Like it's spiritual <laughs> care week. I know this like will be airing next week, but um, you know, I, I sent out a little message to all of my colleagues, chaplains where I work. And I just said, thank you so much for all that you guys are doing this year. It's been a challenging year where we've had to think outside of the box to be as effective as we can be in providing spiritual care. And that's just, that's our year as chaplains, yeah. thinking outside of the box and finding new ways. Yeah, I can, as I listen to you talk and listen to your passion for taking care of others, I cannot but imagine the impact that your grandmother had upon you. And uh-huh. part of this is her legacy. Uh, could you tell us some of the lessons she taught you about life? I, I mean, I was only 12 when she passed away, um, but she taught me how, I think her and my aunts, but really just taught me how to love people. Like, I never saw my grandmother be mean to anybody. Like, she was always so welcoming and generous to people when I was little. Um, you know, I mean, she had her discipline side. You just didn't do different things, but you know, like she just loved me so well. And then just being able to hear her sing those hymns, like there was just not ever a doubt in my, the fiber of my being that she loved God. And so, um, you know, I found different ways along my life journey just to know that God is there and God is with me. And so in those moments when I'm struggling, I mean, I think we all have some struggles off and on, you know, I just know that there's a God because I've had those experiences. And certainly my grandmother was very formative in my childhood and teaching me about God because I wasn't hearing about it from anywhere else. What do you think she would say now to the woman you've become? Wow. Um, I would think she would just let me know that she's proud of me and she loves me. Well, it's obvious that she has. Uh, I know that uh, you've been outlived your grandmother many years and I'm thinking about how how she has influenced you even to this mm-hmm. day even to this moment mm-hmm. and how significant she's been in your life and uh, uh, you spoke of her having some uh, dementia mm-hmm. issues and uh, it's 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 interesting now you know you deal with those patients as well in your ministry as you're dealing now how has she uh, influenced you in how to deal with your patients that are dealing with dementia? What has she taught you? I think, you know, first and foremost, they're still a child of God, you know, no matter what, and they're a human being. So even if they don't have a faith and we meet people where they're at, no matter what, they're a person. And and so um, I remember the story that, the nursing home didn't want my mom bringing ice cream into my grandmother because she was type two diabetic. And they're like, you're going to make her blood sugar. My mom's like, she loves ice cream. (laughs) 
she's going to have something she enjoys for the rest of her life, you know, for whatever time she has left. And so learning, just being taught at an age, and my mom was a nurse. So um, just being taught, like people have personhood and they have autonomy and being able to make their decisions. So, so whenever I approach an Alzheimer's dementia patient, like I'm super excited to see them. You know, my face lights up. I'm waving with both hands. Hi, how are you doing? Um, you know, and I talk to them like I'm talking to you guys now. Like I don't talk down to them. I don't talk like they're babies. I don't talk, you know, like um, in any sort of demeaning way. I speak to them like they're just normal people here, especially if I know like they have um, some kind of hobby that you know, like gardening, I might pull out pictures of my flower beds for them, or I might take a gardening magazine to look through because those are, those are things that they've always enjoyed. And so, um, just trying to meet them where they're at, but also being honoring of who they've always been. With that, we'll take a little break and then we'll come right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. Uh, this is Sol Obama, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Before the break, we're continuing our conversation with Danelle. Uh, Danelle, you started your journey in healthcare working as a social worker. How was that for you? Well, I actually didn't start in healthcare as a social worker. Mm-hmm. My bachelor's um, after college, I got a bachelor's in social work in undergrad. Um, and from there, I worked in a residential day treatment center for teens, um, specifically with teen moms, but they had runaways in a shelter and all of that on that same campus. Left there, went to children's services, left there, went to foster care. Again, I think it just helped me to meet people where they were at in their homes, you know, because as social workers, you don't typically meet people in a building, you meet them in their homes. And so, you know, going in and out of these homes and talking to people about difficult subjects, you know, they've been referred to children's services um, because they've been accused of abusing or neglecting their child or children. And so, um, you know, learning how to uh, just meet people where they're at, you know, like, it's stressful. It's stressful. Families are stressful and parenting, you know, can be stressful. And then you add all of these other layers of issues on top of it that impact families, you know. Uh, you seem to get past your introvert tendencies quickly. Is that, is that, is that why you went into social work to help get you through that before you walked into ministry? Um, I think I went into social work, you know, I mean, I think we all have our own stories about why we go into any helping profession. I mean, I grew up in a highly abusive home. Um, both my parents worked, but, um, neither one of them provided all of us a lot of emotional or, uh, emotional support. Um, you can think of what can happen to a child and it happened to me, um, sexually abused by my dad's best friend. Um, my parents just weren't around. Um, my, yeah, so lots of emotional, my dad was very physically abusive. 
So I think I went into social work. Like initially I wanted to um, dual major in college. I wanted to do child psychology and early childhood education so I could become a child psychologist. And while I was in undergrad, it became very clear to me um, that the people that could afford a child psychologist had insurance and other means of paying for some help. And so I changed my major to social work so that I could help more of the underprivileged. Um, just thought that I could save the kids of the world, I guess, you yep. know, childhood enthusiasm. Um, and did what I could for as long as I could. Um, it's hard work. And unfortunately, I just don't agree with the system and the way that it's set up and found myself with my hands tied behind my back. And at the time, I guess I wasn't creative enough to think outside of the box to be able to overcome some of those barriers and just got a little burnout, you know. I can't save anyone. And I think that there's a part of me that knew that. And ultimately, like, I think it broke my heart a little bit, you know, which leads to compassion fatigue, um, where you can't save them. And you're okay. leaving and you get to go on about your business and these children and these families and these teens that have been abandoned by their families, they're, they're, they're there. They're in their lives. And yet your life splits off and goes somewhere else because there is a difference between professional and personal um, and I think for any of us in any helping field, it takes a while for us to figure out that boundary, that line between personal and professional so that we don't end up in compassion fatigue, so that we don't end up being, you know, at a higher risk for burnout. So that I have these conversations with nurses a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, okay. Uh, before we go there, um, it looks like, um, thank you, first of all, you know, for for your full disclosure there, being honest with what happened to you, which is tragic. Uh, but for for your ability to take a tragic situation and try to become part of the solution, that is very honorable there. Yeah. So was I the, hope so. was it fulfilling for you? Um, you know, I was young and I still hadn't got a lot of counseling and healing from my past. And so I think that, um, I mean, it was as fulfilling, I suppose, as it could be at the time. Um, but it wasn't until I actually left social work and my mom had her strokes that I ended up with a counselor that kind of helped me maintain my balance with my mom. But at the same time, we worked through a lot of my childhood issues and, and found some healing with that and just forgiveness and letting some things go. Um, and you know, I think I'd be a very different social worker today if if I were to go back to social work. Um, but I love what I do now, so I don't think there's any going back at this point. Um, but yeah, it's it's obvious that you have this wonderful background which you bring into, uh, and then your story about the five people that kind of surprised you by saying, "Hey, you should be a hospice chaplain, or you should be a chaplain." Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't always come that easy. You know, it doesn't, you listen to what the people say and then you have to, to go through your own understandings and your own, uh, find your own, your own call. Was there uh, an event or experience that uh, all of a sudden solidified your understanding? Well, I, as I said, my mom was a nurse. And so um, there was not a lot of topics that were off the table at our kitchen table. I mean, it's medical field family. So, um, the medical world was actually like hospitals were never a scary place to me. 
at all, period. My mom was far scarier than any hospital, only because I grew up in the 70s and 80s and she could bring shots home. So you end up with a little sinus infection. Mom could take care of that with a shot, you know? And so um, her being able to do that at home, scary. (laughs) Um, But so the medical field's just never been uh, a scary place. So when somebody mentioned chaplaincy, it was like, oh, well, okay, hospitals are familiar to me and the medical field's familiar to me. I mean, and then um, my mom had the brain aneurysm in 2003 and I literally was at the hospital um, and God bless the neuro nurses. I'm still in contact with a couple of them today because I worked at that same hospital for a while and just got to know some of them, but they all recognized me when I walked on the unit during my residency. And, um, and so um the nurses there like would give me shift report before I would leave to go to work in the morning because I slept at the hospital. I would sleep at the hospital, wake up, go get shift report about my mom and they explained everything. So they talked to me in medical terms. You know, they just taught me everything so they could just give it to me. I give her a kiss goodbye. I would go to work at the post office. I would go home, take a shower, eat dinner and go back to the hospital and spend the night. I think losing my mom beyond anything just made hospice possible. Um, Mm when you lose the dearest person to you, um, that's the hardest person to be with at end of life. And so being present with her at the moment that she left this, this plane and went into the eternal, um, I remember that moment for forever, but it's also the one that allows me to be able to do what I do. Um, and, and so, um, having some people speak to me about hospital chaplaincy or hospice chaplaincy. Hospice chaplaincy came a lot later. Mm-hmm. I, I bucked going to hospice. And when I first went, I hated it. But um, I've since just loved it. I love being able to support our patients and um, helping people come to some kind of peace at end of life or just being present so that um, people feel seen and validated at the end of life. You said you hated going into hospice. Could you talk to Uh us about that and what changed? So I I did an interim position at a hospital for about seven months. And when that ended, the director said, hey, I'm sending you to hospice. And I was like, "Um, no, we're not doing that. And um, she's like, oh, but we are. And I said, oh, but we're not. And um, I went and hated it because I was just casual position and... um, just did not, couldn't get to know the patients very well because I'm only working like once a month seeing patients. And a lot of times I would get sent to people that were not verbal. And so I was just scrambling to find clues as to how I could um, provide some support. And um, and then they, they called me up after about two years of doing that and said, hey, we need you to do this interim position for us for two weeks. And I cried. I was like, no. (laughs) And so I talked to a manager that I really trusted and she's like, you can do anything for two weeks. You can do anything for two weeks. Um, And so I ended up going, um, ended up with a fabulous team that just accepted me and um, ended up two weeks turned into five months. Um, And so I ended up falling in love with hospice, Um, just learning like I think there's something to be said with being with patients and families from the moment they're admitted to hospice while they're on that journey. 
you know, in a consistent manner, whether you're seeing them every two weeks or once a month or whatever your frequency is, just getting to know them and helping them on that journey and being part of a team that, you know, where everybody validates one another in their position. It was a fabulous experience for me and just helped me really learn to love hospice and be with people. And, and learning that um, I have more patients, honestly, that talk to me. I shouldn't say more patients, but I have a lot of patients that love to talk to me about morphine. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not the nurse and I'm not the doctor, but it is a very spiritual issue for them and in, in taking right. morphine. And so um, you know, just helping them process what's your fear about it? Like what is going on that, you know, you're, you're hesitating on this and, um, you know, and working with the nurses closely with those conversations <laughs> and encouraging patients, you need to tell that to your nurse. Um, but you know, like just helping people to find that peace and, and whatever that looks like for them, um, to help build their like physical comfort, but their spiritual comfort and, and all of that. Yeah. I get pretty passionate about it. You you enjoy the intimacy of the moments of which you have with them as they're walking their journey of, of life at that time. Yeah. It's obvious. I can see the see the excitement in your face and in your eyes about that. That's a, a powerful, powerful example of what chaplaincy should be all about and how they feel about dealing with one another. I had a patient who um he was older. Um and he had Alzheimer's and he um, didn't know me. I think he may recognize me because of the frequency of my visits to him, but never knew my name, never knew anything. But, you know, like I said, I always walk in with a giant smile on my face, waving with both hands like, hey. And so he was always happy to see me and he was just a happy guy. And um, I walked in one day. Uh, or one day I took him outside into the courtyard because it was a nice day and he was telling me all about how they build things and because he had been in construction or whatever. And he uh, was just talkative that day. And um, and then a couple weeks later I went in and um, his family was there and they were like, hey, he's remembering stuff he hasn't remembered forever. And I'm like, oh, I'll go. You guys stay with him. You guys can spend as much time with him reminiscing as you need to. And they had to leave because they had a family, uh, an appointment and um, they're like, no, please stay and talk to him. And so um, this gentleman, um, I said, hey, how are you doing today? And he's like, I'm doing good. He's like, I just want to thank you for taking me outside in the courtyard. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, you're welcome. Thank you for sharing with me how to build things. Um, and so I learned in that moment that that's how I approached my Alzheimer's and dementia patients. Like that taught me that valuable lesson that I know that every family and not every patient gets that gift of clarity at the end of life, but he did. And it just taught me that our Alzheimer's dementia patients are in there and they're still people that there's something that's blocking their ability to communicate. And I've seen it with music and memory with patients too, mm -hmm. and, and doing that with some patients that, another end-stage Alzheimer's patient. He had been brilliant, brilliant, an engineer or something. And um, I did music and memory with him one day and he was nonverbal. And I did music and memory with him one day and he just started talking after about 10 minutes, told me about his family of origin, told me how many children he had, genders of everybody, names. And so we just had a lovely visit while music from 
his teenage years was playing in the background. And after that visit, I called his wife and said, I just had the most amazing visit with your husband. And this is what I did. And this is what happened. And she's like, really? And um, she's like, so what all did he tell you? And I told her everything. She's like, that's absolutely correct. All of it. And so just knowing and enabling um, myself and just being able to see people it, it, that I think has been those two experiences have definitely taught me with Alzheimer's dementia patients. Like, I don't ever want to like hold, I, I take what I do very seriously. And I feel from my faith tradition that there's an accountability on my part that I'm going to have to stand before God and answer to how I treat people, especially in the role that I've been blessed with and called to. And I don't ever want to stand before God and have to be accountable for how I've treated a patient. And so I take it very seriously that I approach each of these people as people. They're not just patients. They're not just Alzheimer's. They're not dementia. They're not cancer. They're not any of their diagnosis. They are people. They are children of God. I mean, the story that I have with my grandmother, who uh, at the time was called being senile at this time, mm -hmm. and we call it dementia, of course. And she lived out in Maine, and my grandmother uh, had a favorite pastor that would had moved from the church that she went to, and uh, every time he had to go to a meeting, he uh, he would go from northern Maine to southern Maine, and he would drive right by where my grandmother was living at the time in this facility, stop by, talk to her probably, did a little interaction, and then pray with her, then went on his way. And that would go on, you know, however often he would do that. And at one point, I was told that uh, my grandmother, as he was leaving and saying after his prayer, she says, uh, thank you for praying for me. And, you know, you don't know when those things will happen. I have another story. I want one other story, too, about that happening. Uh, I do a thing called pet therapy. I have a dog. And we went to a facility and we were in the Alzheimer's unit, and I'm walking with my dog, and this lady comes running up to him and gets on the floor with him and hugging him and petting him and, you know, doing all the wonderful things and, and talking to him like it was her child, like mm -hmm. all people do. Oh, that's a good boy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had an aide come right up beside me with her eyes as wide as saucers saying, she doesn't talk. She doesn't, you wow. know. I mean, these are little things that come on that make us realize that when we have those patients that don't respond to us, it mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean they're not responding to us. That's just like you're saying there. We need to be re responsible and recognize the fact that when we walk into a room, uh, mm -hmm. we're known whether we're, we're responded to or not. Right. And I think it's important for them to be, to feel like they're known also. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, yeah. I am, I'm one of those like you. I might not go in and raise my arms around like you do, but I certainly talk louder mm -hmm. and with great enthusiasm. Hey, how you doing? This is Joe. Mm -hmm. I'm the chaplain. I know maybe mm -hmm. you don't want to see me, but hey, I want to see you. You know, something mm -hmm. like something. And just to show my enthusiasm that, there's, that I'm there with them. Always say their name. Because... Um, mm -hmm. They've known it since birth. I mean, like, sure. that's what their parents have called them. And so um, 
just making sure that, you know, to say their name because it brings them to attention. And I think mm. that there's like those, you know, we have our senses and those can kind of bring us back from wherever we're at. And so just saying their name, you know, before even speaking to them. Yeah. Make so, sure, make sure you know the nickname because they will respond to that more than they will. <laughs> their real. Yes. Name. I always ask, that's one of the first things I always ask either a patient or a family. Like if it's a patient that's verbal, like, Hey, what do you prefer being called? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, if it's a nonverbal patient, you know, I ask the families, you know, does sure. they have the same that they go by? Like, how how should I address them? What name should I use? Mm-hmm. Because for a while I went by my middle name. So, you know, it's, and everybody has a nickname, I, I feel like. But I also think it's important to just meet people. I mean, that's what we do as chaplains is meet people where they're at. And so, um I don't know. Some of my favorite things to do are just praying with people for healing. Like the people that are like, I believe God's going to heal me here on earth. And they're like, what do you believe? And I'm like, Hey, I'll partner my faith with yours and we'll pray. And then, you know, and those are the patients that kind of freak out our other disciplines. They're like, I don't know that they're dying. And I'm like, no, (laughs) they're aware. So, uh, you know, with those patients, I always say, you know, I'm more than happy to pray with you for your healing. Like I, I can do that with you, but I need to know, like, I don't need to know, I guess I would just like to know that if that healing doesn't happen here on earth, like we're praying for, how does that impact your faith with God? Or would that impact your faith? And unanimously, I've never gotten anybody that said anything other than no, God's still God and he's going to be in charge. So, mm-hmm. um, you yeah. know, it's, you know, but, I also have had fantastic visits with people that are atheists or agnostics. You know, it's just being. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right there. I think some clinicians confuse cure and healing because mm-hmm. uh, healing also involves that element of peace, peace with death, peace with yeah. their present reality. And that's what chaplains bring, that sense of healing. Any word of wisdom uh, for chaplains, your final thoughts to help chaplains who are listening to the show and dealing with the pandemic? You know, I think in this time of pandemic, just be creative. Think outside of the box. You know, things aren't going the way that they've always gone. And so we need to be creative in finding new ways to meet our patients' needs and our staff needs too. I mean, we're all stressed. We're all, you know, struggling to find our way and how to do it. Um, You know, not only professionally, but even our colleagues that are struggling personally with this COVID, you know, I know at the beginning it was, oh my gosh, could I take this home to my family? Because they're, you know, going into facilities or Mm -hmm. patients' homes that had, that were COVID positive and just that fear and, um, you know, and, and I understood it. I ended up going to visit a patient that was COVID positive at end of life. And that was stressful, you know, and I, I was worn out. I got home and texted my manager, like I'm exhausted and I need a nap now just because of doing that. But just, you know, considering people. And I think the one thing that we always just need to be mindful of as, as chaplains is just meeting people where they're at. And for me, that's the most important thing that you know, if it's been the same visit every time with me for a patient, I still go in, you know, and if they have a different agenda that day, it's okay. Um, mm-hmm. I have a patient that's always, always, always been engaging with me. Um, been on service for quite a while. We have those cardiac patients that kind of go back and forth. And 
um, have their ups and downs. And my last visit with the patient, exhaustion. And so I just held her hand while she slept. And it just brought her peace knowing I was sitting right there. So, Uh you know, as familiar as we can become, it's still different every time. And to not go in with any agenda, but just to be with people with wherever they're at in that moment, because that's our snapshot. That's, you know, that's the snapshot in time that we're there with them. And so it might be different two hours later when the social worker goes. But in that moment, we just need to be with them where they're at. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Chaplain Danielle Schumacher, and thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.